Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Today's show is brought to you by Kendra Scott. Kendra Scott has the jewelry you've been searching for with high style and quality gifts at an affordable price. They even have a great selection of gifts under $100, plus free shipping, free returns, and my favorite, free gift wrapping. Use code HAPPYHOUR for 20% off your purchase of any full price fashion jewelry at KendraScott.com or mention the code HAPPYHOUR in any Kendra Scott store. That code is HAPPYHOUR at KendraScott.com for 20% off your purchase, valid until September 1st. Hello, 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 friends. Happy middle of July to you guys that are listening to this when it first airs. I am back home from Italy and we had a phenomenal time. Today, we have a phenomenal show for you. My guest today is my friend, my real life friend, Dr. Andrea Holman. Yes, I like to call her doctor as much as I can because if you go to school enough to get your doctorate, you deserve to be called doctor. So Andrea and I met at church a couple of years ago and I'm so incredibly grateful to know her Today's show is one that is going to leave you thinking for hours after you listened because it did that to me. I promise you. We talk about foster care in the show. We talk about the work that Andrea and her husband, Tapera, have done with training foster parents. We talk about how when you look at the world through a gospel lens, it helps you to know how to not compartmentalize your faith, but that you can carry your faith into your work, into your community, into your culture. We talk about the importance of a diverse community racial socialization, and historical narratives and how they've been written for us. The thing that's going to leave you thinking, though, is when we talk about beauty standards. Andrea dropped a bomb on me, and I haven't stopped thinking about it. She talks about how beauty standards in our society and how in the culture of the church and what it tends to look like, how we sometimes label who is worthy to be labeled pretty or dateable based on how they look instead of the characteristics that they have in their heart. You guys, it's a great conversation. And then we round it off by talking about grieving unmet expectations. Everyone that is hearing my voice right now has had to grieve some sort of unmet expectation in your life in one way or another. And this is a great conversation about that. Friends, tomorrow I'm getting on an airplane and heading to Orlando for Lifeway Women's Event. If you're going to be there, please say hi. I love meeting listeners. I truly love it because when I record this show, it's just me and the guests sitting in my tiny house. Or when I'm recording this intro right now, it's just me and my computer. So I love meeting people who listen to the show. I really, really do. Why don't you follow me on Instagram? I just got back from Italy. We had such a great time. I had fun places to show you. Instagram's my favorite social media. Follow me over there at, at Jamie Ivy. One thing that's fun is when you tag when you're listening to the show, you know it helps other people find the show. So use the hashtag happy hour with Jamie Ivy. Okay, guys, here is my conversation with my friend Andrea. Andrea, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you, Jamie. Good to be here. Thanks for coming out all the way out in the boondocks. All the way out here. I'm a South Austinite, though, so, so it wasn't, wasn't that so far. far. Good. No, no. Thanks for coming to my studio. Okay, so Andrea and I are real life friends. Real I feel life. like sometimes I have to say that because a lot of people come in here that I'm meeting for the very first time that they very sit in true. this chair. That yeah. is not the case here. No. No. I don't even, I would, I like to tell people when the first time I met someone, but I don't remember oh, the first wow. time I met you. Gosh, had to have been at least almost 10 years ago, maybe? I mean, a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before this house. That you How know. long have you and Tapera been married? We have been, we'll be nine years in December. And I think I knew you before. 
I don't know. I can't remember. We've been in Austin almost 11. That's true. So yeah, yeah. So we'll say about 10 years. We'll say about 10 Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she's a real life friend. We go to Mm -hmm. church together. She is a helper to me in my growth. Oh, that's so kind. You are. Can I tell the story real quick? You can. It's incriminating to me and it's awesome to you. I'm intrigued. I know what the story is, but let's go. Okay, so last summer, I was at a conference Uh in Indianapolis and I had my daughter's story with me. And my daughter's story is black and I'm white if you're new to listening. And we're at this conference and she is wearing a dress that I, she picked out in the store. It's one of her favorite, it was her Easter dress. It's like Mm -hmm. one of her favorite dresses ever. And someone sent me a message on Instagram and said, hey, and this woman that sent me the message was white. And she said, hey, um, I'm just curious why you have your daughter dress with a dress with watermelons all over it. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, because mm-hmm. she likes it. And she said, I don't remember what she said, but whatever she said was like, this was not okay. Mm-hmm. So my very first call was to Andrea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, have I done something wrong? And you explained it to me. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, thank you so much. But you were kind to me. And then our mutual friend, because she's your friend now, sure. Jackie. Uh huh. Jackie Hill Perry was there. Sure. And so I went up to Jackie and I was like, man, I feel like I've just like really like, I dropped the ball on this. Mm-hmm. Like, I messed up. I should have known this. And she's like, girl, I, I saw you earlier today. I was wondering about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and I think she even said, someone else had said something to her. Oh. And so here I am. And now, you know, I'm feeling like, oh, oh I'm the no. worst mom that's ever walked the face sure. of the earth. But I say that to say that you have been so kind to me in my journey oh. With raising black kids. Oh, that is so kind. I did not say you did something wrong, I don't think. Oh, that's um, nice of you to tell me that. Okay, yeah, you're correcting yourself. <laughs> sure, but there might have been a place, kind of a blind spot there. Yes. Just due to differences that you have. You Which I've have. struggled even now because Story is asked to wear the dress and it's reversible, you know. Oh, it's cute. It's reversible. And so I tell her she has to wear it on the other side. And I've even struggled with, and she asked why. Mm-hmm. And Andrea, I was like, don't even ask why. Just do what I say. Do- like, I didn't even know how to explain it to her, so I did it. Sure. Okay. I didn't want to put, I was like all the things, but all that to say, you were so kind to me. Oh, well, thank you. That is very good. It's nice to be and humbling to be someone's first call, first responder, you were. as it were. You were my first responder. <laughs> and I, I'll admit, I was even like, well, this is dumb, you sure. know, which, hello, we'll talk about. But stereotypes kind of are sometimes, know, but they're real. But they're real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good to understand mm-hmm. too. So all that to say, you're my first responder. So great. But you're also my real friend. Yes. That's, I think everyone should mm-hmm. know that too. I'm not yes. just finding... In reality and on the gram. And on the gram. (laughs) Um, Thank you for coming. Uh, You are one of my smartest friends. Oh, Because I don't have many friends who are doctors. Oh. And you take it. So tell everyone what you do in life and why you are a doctor. The things that I do, all of the things. things. Okay, here's my spiel, Jamie Ivey. So I am an associate professor. Actually, I just got a promotion. Congrats. Um, So I'm associate professor of psychology at a historically black college here in Austin, Houston Tillotson University. Uh, So I teach full time. And I also conduct research around interracial relations, trust, mistrust, privilege, identity, those type of things. I also serve as a co-chair of a health and wellness group that's part of a task force from Mayor Steve Adler's Institutional Racism and Systemic Inequities Task Force for the city of Austin. That was a lot of words. It was a lot of words. (laughs) Um, And I'm also part of board of directors for Humanities Texas um, that works with teachers and educators and the arts and whatnot. So that's a recent appointment. That's all of my doctoring. That's what I do with that title. So 
Dr. Um, Holman, I will refer to oh, you from now and, on. and uh, community liaison for Houston Tillotson and Dell Medical School as well. So we work with the Associate Dean of Health Equity at the medical school to work to combat uh, health disparities in East Austin. So the end. Well, okay. That's the end of Dr. Holman. What about Andrea? Andrea has two kids he made from scratch. One is five and one is almost two. He'll be two next month. Jeremiah and Josiah. And then we've uh, also fostered a couple of kids. How many? Two kids, three times. So we fostered a teenage boy and then a little girl for a little over a year. Two kids, three times. The teenage boy came and went. Okay, because mm-hmm. I was like, that yes. doesn't, the math doesn't add up. But yeah, now it adds yeah, yeah. Up. he came. He was, so actually our fostering journey is interesting because we've never actually had a placement from CPS care. All of our placements have come from other foster parents. Oh, actually, I did not know that. Mm-hmm, yeah, needing emergency removal from their okay. uh, placement that they had. Okay. So. Are you guys still pursuing foster care? I'll say it like this, Jamie. Uh-huh. We still have very much a conviction and calling and purpose for serving the orphan. We are current. We're still actively licensed, and we still are open to emergency respite care. But we are also examining our boundaries in life. Okay, I like that, Jamie. Yeah, that was a long uh, uh-huh. title I gave yeah. you for Dr. Holman. So exactly. we're trying to balance those things. And my husband does a lot of things as well. So. Um, we were trying to figure out what that looks like and how that looks like. And your husband mm-hmm. is um, has an impact on one of my kids' life. Oh, yes, so, yes. very true. So very true. he is a decom leader, which is at our church, like a small group for the youth. Mm-hmm. Like they each have their own. Mm-hmm. And he is my son, Caden's decom leader. That is true. As he's, of today. He's loved it. I know. Yes. He I love him pouring into Caden. Mm-hmm. Yes, so fun. It. He, uh, my husband has a very strong passion for ministering to young males um, in a great way. So he's, is he he's on the board of something? This he... is not this, actually this show's not about him, so you don't have to answer it. This is about Andrea. <laughs> okay, so speaking of foster care, yes. um, I what I love about you and Tapera is this calling and the passion that you have for foster care. Mm-hmm. But you take mm-hmm. a lot of your passions that you have from your career sure. and just your personal life, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you are using those to serve foster parents. Sure. So mm-hmm. tell me about mm-hmm. what. Tell me about how you're using all of that to serve foster parents sure. who are welcoming kids into their home. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think probably around the time that I first met you about 10 years ago, my husband and I were discipled by some people at our church, Kimberly and Michael Stewart. And Michael Stewart was very instrumental in helping me understand the ways that I could use my career for the gospel. Because I think at that time, since I've been very young, I compartmentalized the two and thought, well, there's times when you are living for God and then there's times where you're working. And um, he showed me that the two very much overlap if you can really talk to God about how it is that he has created you for a purpose. And so for me, that's part of what I feel like is a purpose of mine is to help people understand the ways that culture and identity and privilege have all influenced their understanding of who Jesus is and understanding of what the gospel even means. Um, and blind spots that could be there, et cetera, et cetera. So when I do trainings or speaking engagements, that's undergirding all of it. And so foster care, when I do trainings or even when I meet with foster parents who are having difficulties, if there's some interracial relationships going on in their home because of fostering or adoption, I should say, that's part of what I'm doing is just using that same calling just in different ways. Yeah. Um, so you're coming in and you would, would you say you're working with mostly white parents? Almost exclusively. Almost mm-hmm. exclusively. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then your passion is for helping them understand what they bring to the table when sure. they have 
an interracial relationship with sure, their children in their sure. home. Mm-hmm, okay, so let's mm-hmm. talk about some of those things. Right. Like, let's just get what like what is maybe one of your top things that you're bringing to the table for them to understand. I think for and and I'll say for uh, believers especially, I think what can happen is we have this almost naive altruism. I'll say it like that. So there is this instinct and desire to want to help, right? And especially when it's preached from a certain pulpit that fostering and caring from the orphan is true religion, which is scripture inspired, right? That is, that is true. But the naive part is what I'll say is that they kind of just go into it and say, I'm going to help. And I have things that they don't. I have more money. I have more stability and I will help. You know, you're welcome, I, orphan. You're <laughs> right? welcome. I, there's a video that Aaron and I did from probably eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And I literally wish it was not on the internet. Wow. Because I say something that I would never say today. Uh, you know, but we learn and we grow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just would never say what I said. And it right. is this whole mentality of, um, I mean, I'll say what I said. You can find the video. I said, they needed parents. We're parents. Why would we not do it? Right. And my encouragement was, hey, if you're a Christian and you have room, Why not? go get it. Go help a kid. Do it. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that anymore. Sure. So. There is a part of it. I mean, altruism is not wrong. This is something that is a good thing. Um, and in the throes of foster care, when you are in there and people kind of place this almost godlike feeling onto you, you're so amazing. You are great. Part of your reaction is, help me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no. It's not me. I need to help do something. So part of what you're saying is not inherently wrong, but there is something about um, the ignorance. Ignorance as in you don't know what you don't know, right? Um that can end up kind of inadvertently hurting the people that you're bringing into your home. And you. Um, and yourself. I mean, yeah. And a- so that's why I think it's not an accident. It's not surprising, I will say, that all of our foster placements have come from other foster parents. I see. Right. right. Because yeah. what happens is when you get into this field or when you have a conviction and a calling for the orphan, you have a lot of feelings that mm-hmm. go with that. There's a lot of emotions. And so you hear these stories. All of them are rough tough, traumatic stories. And so you're like, I'm going to help. Why wouldn't I help? And then you get in over your head, you get overwhelmed. This is not what I thought it would be. And so that's what's happened with both of the of the placements that we can. Okay. So this is what I'm wondering right now. Let's just say that someone is thinking, wait, I do want to help. Like mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I love Jesus and he says mm-hmm. this and mm-hmm. I want to be a helper. What is like, if, if someone comes to you and sure. they're like, okay, Andrea, I'm in. Like, mm-hmm. sign me up to be a sure. foster parent. What are the top things that you talk to them about? This is any one at all, or are you talking about interracial? Well, anything. Anything, but okay. I mean, do your specialty. I'll say for- Do you. For, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do me, Jamie, do you. right now. First things first, I think is humility for sure, because I think there's a lot of pride and a lot of subconscious superiority that can happen when you are the foster parent and someone is the orphan, right? There's these identities that we've got psychologically and that put us blind to a lot of the ways that we still have work to do. So I think the first thing you have to do, the the conviction is just the first part. That just gets you in the gate. That gets you to fill out the paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. Or it gets you to stay through all of the trainings that you've got to do, get you to learn CPR. But after that, having the humility to say, what do actually I need to know and learn from? What do I need to realize about my family of origin, about my attachment issues? Those type of things are are some of the first out of the gate that you have to learn if you're going to actually take someone from a rough, tough, traumatized story, or even a story of just abandonment and rejection 
and then bring them into your home for a corrective experience or a permanent experience. Second thing I would say for interracial, if you're saying, okay, I'm, let's take an example of I am a white female, okay, and I want to, I am passionate about fostering and adoption and I want to adopt a child of color, African-American or what have you. If that child is the only person you know of that racial ethnic identity, I need you to pump some brakes for just a second. You need more people. Okay, a community that is racially and ethnically and socioeconomically diverse is your first jump because it's a lot to put on a child to have them teach you and educate you. That's a big burden that child doesn't need to bear. They've got enough going on. But doesn't love just solve everything, Andrea? Sure. Oh my gosh. Listen, <laughs> I look back and when you when you're saying this, what mm-hmm. I'm thinking with your first one is mm-hmm. if you don't deal with that stuff, it comes up. It like comes it's gonna come up. to the it surface. It will come up. Yes. Um and I I mean, I look back and when Aaron and I started our adoption process of our kids, I mean, my kids have been home nine years, mm-hmm. almost 10, 10 this year. And so honestly, I don't mm-hmm. think about adoption a lot because we're just like doing our sure. family, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. But when I look back when we started this process 12 years ago, the naivety that we had mm-hmm. was just like what I said earlier, like, mm-hmm. oh, we're just going to love kids. Sure, sure. And that comes from a really good place. It does. But I think it can become when when life gets hard, because I always say adoption is built on loss. Like mm-hmm. no one shows mm-hmm. up to your family through foster care adoption because everything's awesome. Absolutely. Even mm-hmm. if it's a like private in state, you get that baby from the hospital. There's still a narrative there, there is that still, you weren't chosen. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's still trauma. Yes. That even if you held that baby three hours after it came out of its mother's Absolutely. thing. Mm-hmm. Canal. Canal. <laughs> <laughs> but there, it's always built on that. And so sure. I, I think it's so good, like mm-hmm. that number two of just see who's around us. Yes. Okay, carry yes. on. I interrupt you. Um, number three. I will say... You, you made me think of a time I was at a uh, conference for work and I went to a breakout session about uh, microaggressions with foster care placements and the, and the presenters talked about a longitudinal study. So a long-term study that they did with young black kids who were raised in uh, white homes and some of the themes that came out of that. These people were now in their 40s. Um, so this was new for me because I had never really talked to anybody that old yeah, yeah. Um, or heard their experience or narrative around being raised there. And one thing that all of the participants in the study said was that they always felt loved by their family. They never felt unloved or unaccepted. Or if they did, it was something easy to work around. They felt like they were part of the family. But one thing that all the participants in the study also said was that they did not always feel like they had a place to fully discuss parts of themselves once they left their home, once they were in school or at work or in society. Things happened directly because of their race and they weren't always able to process that and hold it at home. Okay, Because so, they felt isolated Because they didn't alone. know. They, they didn't, didn't have the information. Their parents didn't. So part of the phrase that we use in, in psychology is called racial socialization. So what that means is that your socialization, your meaning, your ascriptions, your cultural information around your racial group. And they didn't always have that. So when someone would make fun of their hair or call them an N-word or whatever, oftentimes what the parents would do is say, we love you. That's not an issue here. You're accepted here. You're part of this family, which is all true and all good. But that's where that naive altruism comes in again, as opposed to say, hey, no, let's talk directly about this. This is what you can say. This is what you can do. This is the history behind why people would say something like that. That happens in a lot of homes where everybody is of the same minority racial group. Mm. Right. So black parents are often having those discussions even before those things happen. Right. Uh, But that didn't always happen in those families. And so that was very good information for me to realize that, yes, it is helpful to love your kids. It's good. That's positive. Uh Uh-huh. 
Children yeah. like to be loved and accepted in their yeah. family. They also want to feel like they can come home and bring all of themselves and get help, get salve on the wounds, uh, as it were. I feel like this is something that I've learned. And so like, I've already confessed like failure. I will always mm-hmm. confess failures on the show. Mm-hmm. Like I'm learning Good. as well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is something that Aaron and I have made progress in. You have, yeah. Like, we are not mm-hmm. there and we'll never be there. I always say like, mm-hmm. I can't offer you everything because I'm white. But I will say that we've we've dealt with this in the last year sure. with you one have. of our kids. Mm-hmm. And we've had conversation after conversation mm-hmm. about how do we equip you with words to sure. say. Mm-hmm. One thing that I loved is when, like I was proud of, I guess Aaron probably made this call, mm-hmm. the very first instance that something happened to one of our kids and it was around the, him being called the N-word. Aaron talked to him and then he immediately called one of his friends mm-hmm. who's black and said, can you come talk to my son? Sure. And I just felt like that was, to me, that was a really good thing mm-hmm. of, we, of, me, of us saying, we, we love you and we're going to help equip sure. you, but let me give you somebody who actually understands right. because we've never had, I've never, never, mm-hmm. I've never ever had anyone talk to me the mm-hmm. way that that is. And yeah. so I feel like, like just what you're saying, I'm like, okay, we're making steps and, you, are. you know, but mm-hmm. keep going. Yes. No. And you know what? I think, also, you, you reminded me that oftentimes I think when you are the white parent of a child of color, it can seem a little distorted. Reality can get a little distorted. And there's this pressure and expectation that I have to figure out how to do the perfect thing or say the exact right thing here or get somebody who does. Black parents are figuring this out, too. We that's are. A, that's a good you, sigh of relief. Right. What you've got is a brief window into the kind of overwhelmed or anxious feelings that we've got. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I think of a time when I was pregnant with my first child who's a boy and my husband and I were watching the television after Trayvon Martin died and the acquittal from George Zimmerman and I was sitting there I was probably about five six months pregnant I've seen my husband cry probably I could probably count on one hand he's not a crier if you are listening and you know him you are not surprised but he cried and I'm holding my belly and I'm near tears as well and we're saying what do we do with this boy Mm -hmm. how do we raise this black boy safely I don't have any idea. And it was such, I can remember that moment like it was yesterday because it was such a heavy feeling there in our bedroom of feeling out of control to keep our kids safe. And then I call my mother because she's raised four kids. I said, well, how do you do this? What did you do? And she said, you pray. Mm. I really don't know. You pray, you try to teach them as much as you can, that racial socialization mm-hmm. piece, but there's there's only so much you can do to protect them and shield them yeah. from a, re- a very yeah. harsh reality. Yeah. Um, so you're not experiencing anything yeah, yeah. You, that yeah. Um, we're not experiencing too and trying to figure out as well. I think the problem might come in when a white parent raising a black child isn't thinking that. Sure. Do you know what I mean? That's where the learning posture and that humility comes okay. and, and takes place. Yeah. Um, because you, as that parent, you are riddled with privilege. A lot of scholars would say that racial privilege, that kind of unearned advantage or entitlement is the highest we've got in the land. And so when you've got that, you that privilege breeds blind spots. It just breeds ignorance. And so, and it, I think the most uh, critical aspect of racial privilege is the fact that you get to write a historical narrative. You get to say what's true. And everybody else's ideas are just that, their ideas compared to your truth. And so what can happen, the danger in that is that your child can come home and they can say, hey, this happened to me. And you can say with your kind of privileged blind spot, you can say, that stuff didn't happen. That was a long time ago. You're a nice kid. They probably meant this, right? And so you can kind of minimize or invalidate experiences that are very real and very true for your child. Ugh, we mm-hmm. have walked this road this year. Yeah. It has been so hard. Mm-hmm. It's probably been one of the, well, it has hands down 
been one of the hardest things we've walked with a kid with dealing with friends mm. who, you know, it's with his peers yeah. and that he would say are his friends asking him straight, can I have a pass with the N-word with you? Sure. And, you know, culturally these kids are, they're in seventh grade and they're dumb mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure mm-hmm. out, they hear this word being <laughs> used dumb. in what, oh, kids are dumb. <laughs> like this is, this. I say this all the time. I would say that straight to my kids' yes, face. I know Their brains don't work all the way. I they mean, come don't. on. They're not finished. They're not finished. <laughs> no. But we made dumb choices when we were kids. I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. Our kids are going to say, they're going to do some dumb things mm-hmm. because they're kids and they're learning. Sure. And so- but walking that road has been, we've seen where we've had to go to administration and finally I reached out to the parent sure. and all, and, and we're trying to figure out like, where, how much do we step in? How much do we equip him? I mean, it is just, mm-hmm. it's a whole new thing. There's a, welcome to the window. Welcome to the window. <laughs> to the brief window. Welcome into, to the window. Yeah, we're doing that too. Okay. So did you get all your three things that you would say? I think you said humility. What community. Was this? Yes. Yeah. Surround yourself with community. Therapy probably. I mean, shoot. <laughs> So much. Yes, so much. I've given therapy. I was in therapy before I did foster care and needed to go back again because that stuff brings out of you things you would never expect or know. I never thought I had anger issues or patience issues like that. Mm -hmm. And boy, was I wrong, let me tell you. (laughs) Commonality right here. Yes. Uh, Counseling started for me after we brought our kids home from Haiti. Mm. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. like life. I mean, it was just hard. Mm-hmm. I've said it a thousand times, just trauma, you know? And yeah. I've said this on the show before is that I had kind of a come to Jesus moment about four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, probably f- hopefully now five or six years ago, actually. It was before I started the show where I used to always feel like my life is so hard mm-hmm. with raising kids from trauma. This right. is so hard. Mm-hmm. And I had an eye-opening experience one day where God was like, do you think it's not hard for them? Mm. You think this is not yeah. a hard, like yeah. you, they, they left the only thing they've ever, like I you think this is easy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, wow. Yes. Wow, this is not about me. And I mean, that was a humbling thing. And that's hard to confess. Absolutely. In front of all these people it's listening. But it confess. is just like, it's reality that I had a moment and, mm-hmm. and I'm, thank God that he came to me and like impressed Absolutely. on me. Absolutely. Jamie. You're having a pity party and you don't think anything's hard for anybody else. No. So, yeah. That's so true. And that, I mean, it reminds me a lot of a lot of our foster care journey as well and just realizing how much I'd made that about myself. I think that's part of that new re- naive altruism mm-hmm. is understanding how it affects me and impacts me because that subconscious superiority thing again, where you're like, you're welcome. I, I'm helping you. I'm helping you. And part of that ugly truth about our sinful flesh is that you do think you're doing the right thing and that you should be rewarded for that. Even if that reward looks like a child that loves you back or doesn't hit you or doesn't say, I want to go home, you know, those type of things. Um, so I think this was in the book that you had me review a while back for your book club. No one else asked, no one ever asked. Is that the uh, book? Yeah, no one ever um, asked. Where one of the, in one of the characters said something like, I almost regret our question did I even do the right thing uh-huh. taking this child into my uh-huh. home? And that's something that really only other foster and adoptive parents can under- will t- yeah, will understand or even tell to yeah. each other uh-huh. um, because you do start to feel indignant. Like, do you, all this stuff that I did to either get you here or keep you here, do you know how this is tearing me up and they're acting this way? But here's the thing is grief manifests in a lot of different ways and it comes from a lot of different losses. And just because it's not a loss that you've ever experienced or expected or don't even identify as a loss doesn't mean that grief reactions aren't still Isn't present. Real. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I know I forgot I asked you to review that book. <laughs> yeah, there was that's a book that we had in our book club last year. No one ever asked by Katie 
Gein, by Katie. That's Gein Hart, a, mm-hmm. by Katie. <laughs> I like Katie a lot. Uh, we did a, a little um, Instagram live with her. Mm-hmm. She's great. But I was like, okay, Andrea, this is a white woman mm-hmm. writing about some issues that sure. revolve around race. Can you review mm-hmm. it for me? And thankfully you did. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Okay, guys, I know you're loving my conversation with Andrea Holman, but I want to stop real quick and thank two more of our sponsors that make the show happen. The first one is Rothy's. You guys know I have mentioned how much I like my Rothy's. I have a pair of the Scooter Red Flats, but they have this added design detail across the toe. They're so, so, so cute. But you can't find that design anymore because one of my favorite things about Rothy's is that they're constantly launching new styles. So every time you go, you're going to find a pair that you love or maybe three pairs that you love. It's no surprise that Rothy's has over a thousand nearly perfect reviews. They're stylish, they're sustainable, they're comfortable. And here's the best part, you guys, they're washable. Really the perfect flats for life on the go. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, yes, you heard me right, they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right, there's zero break-in period in these shoes, which makes them so great for any of your summer vacationing. Another thing I love about Rothy's is that they are manufactured in a zero-waste factory and they ship directly in the shoebox. So there's no unnecessary packaging when you get your Rothy's in the mail. Rothy's always comes with free shipping and free returns exchanges. No risks, no worries, no reason not to try. Check out all of the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash ivy. That's I-V-E-Y, my last name. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash ivy to get your new favorite flats. They're comfortable, they're stylish, and they're sustainable. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash ivy today. I want to thank another sponsor for today's show, and that is Third Love. Buying a bra has never been easier. With more than 70 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes, Third Love designs bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. Then, thanks to Third Love's 100% fit guarantee, you can wear it, you can wash it, and you can put your bra to the test for 60 days. And if you don't love it, you can return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. I love that about Third Love. I have been wearing Third Love bras for a handful of years, and I continue to be surprised by how comfortable the fit is. The straps don't slip. There's no itchy tag label. It's made of lightweight, super thin memory foam cups that are super comfortable. You guys, it is the perfect bra. Everywhere I go, there's no doubt someone's going to come up to me and say, hey, I have a question. And then they whisper, do you really love Third Love? And the answer is, yes, I really do. 
Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners that you guys 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash Jamie for 15% off today. Okay, here is the rest of my conversation with my friend, Andrea. Okay, so let's move on. Mm -hmm. Foster care. Mm -hmm. Now, I have heard you talk about how we have these cultural standards of beauty Mm -hmm. um, and ability. And how does that um, impact relationships and community within the church? Yes. So this can of worms we can open. Y'all got time? Just take Pull up, take a seat. Okay, Dr. so Holman is has the microphone. Listen, this might be Andrea coming out here because I've got some <laughs> recent convictions here about this. So in the last few months, I think I've just gotten a real fire, and I, I really do think a lot of it is righteous anger um, and conviction from the Lord about this. And it spurred the catalyst for it was a conversation with some people from our church talking about a guy single guy and they were talking about, you know, preferences or whatever. He was looking for a potential mate in the church. And actually my husband threw out a potential person and the other people around us said, oh, no, 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 that's, he would never. It's only thin, blonde, blue, uh, blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, white females. That's who, that's his type. That's the only people that we could even put as potential mates. He wants a Swiss girl. Switzerland. Apparently, he needs to move. Um, <laughs> he so, needs to move. <laughs> um, but I'm, and everybody's kind of agreeing around me. And I feel, I don't know if you ever felt this out of the matrix feeling. Like, is this, am I the only one not okay here? Mm-hmm. And I put up to, I said, well, you know, is, is that the basis for him finding a quote unquote godly relationship, uh-huh. a Christ-centered relationship? Um, because, And what I realized at that moment is that very oftentimes in the church, evangelical white spaces, we conflate beauty and godliness somehow kindness and beauty if you are conventionally attractive and what i mean by that yeah, is if that. you meet all of the standards for beauty in america because that beauty america has that set, america has set which would thin, be okay fully able lighter skinned longer hair those kind of things longer eyelashes long legs uh, curvaceous, but only not too, just a little, just a little 36, 24, 36, that kind of curvaceous, yeah, right? I got it, I got it. Um, seven Which, to 10 waist to hip ratio is what scholars have said. It's really? perfect in our society. Wait, say yeah. it again? Waist to hip ratio. So your waist and your hips need a seven to 10 ratio there. I don't even know what that seven means. Seven tenths. Yeah. Of your, so 36, 24, 36. Oh, okay. Small, like a, a 24 bottle. waist? Um, that's the, that's, that's the, sir mix okay, a lot yeah. for you. You that know, is, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, that kind of smaller waist, mm-hmm. bigger childbearing hips, that's slightly bigger. Though. Okay. Not bigger than that. Which um, you can so pay for some of those things. Like I pay for can, my eyelashes. And we do. We have <laughs> billions of dollars, uh-huh. you know, bought into this uh-huh. idea. But that notwithstanding, what's happened, I feel, in the church for a very long time is that we have now equated meeting those standards with somehow being inherently godly or kind or a potential spouse. Those are the people that can actually treat you well. And besides the fact that that is erroneous, right? That's not true. What's also there is some racial bias in that because there are only certain people that get to be labeled as attractive. There is some ability privilege and blind spots there because if you're not fully able, somehow or another, you're inherently just not worthy of being evaluated as a potential spouse. And that's not really fair or right. I don't think it just matters in terms of potential marriage. 
I think in terms of other female relationships, mm-hmm. female to females, yeah. we talk to each other and we say things that are just not helpful. And it's it's pushing us into this prideful, very self-focused, very narcissistic way of being, all the while thinking that we're just as godly because we're just as pretty. So, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest here. I've, I'm sitting here going, A, do I do this? I do it. B, mm-hmm. have I heard, th- like literally you're speaking something to me mm-hmm. right now as if we were having drinks at sure. a happy hour. There you go. And I would be like, I don't really know. I don't understand this, Andrea. Mm-hmm. Like I'm mm-hmm. asking questions from my mm-hmm. own not understanding right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So but besides the example that you gave earlier mm-hmm. with the guy looking for yeah. his Which he's not the Swiss only guy. Wife. People know, do that no, no. all the time. Yeah. But can you give me another example in a like, I know that was with groups from church, but mm-hmm. when you, if you're talking about how does our church do this? And mm-hmm. I say like the big church, evangelical, mm-hmm. not our particular, which mm-hmm. there as well, but I mean mm-hmm. in, on a big scheme sure. of things. Give me another example. Help me understand this a little bit more. I think Because I literally, and it could come from, I'm going to acknowledge mm-hmm. it, Privilege. Sure. But I don't understand this. Well, so in that moment that I talked about with the, yeah, the preferences, dude, yeah. right? Um, that's when I had one of those out of the matrix moments where I'm like, wait a minute, What's I think happening? this is everywhere. And so I've seen it all of the time, but that's when kind of the lid came off yeah. of it. And I, ha- I can't unsee it right now. Now I've always been, uh, you know, a little bit more aware of just beauty privilege issues just because of my training. And then femininity's kind of lost on me. So I see those things a little bit more. But um, one thing I think could help explain it is not necessarily the elevation of certain quote unquote beautiful people, but the invisibility of the quote unquote non-beautiful people. Okay. So who gets a little bit more profiled? Who are the people that folks are asking in your spaces? You're not married yet? Uh. Oh, she'd make a great wife. Right, She's you're saying so if someone's pretty. not fitting this American standard that we've set, then they kind of fall no by one, the wayside. No one is even concerned if they're not married. No one's concerned. Nope. There's a a gentleman that goes to our church who is not fully able. Um, he has a physical disability. He's a wonderful, faithful man of God. But I don't know if I've ever heard anyone ask about any sort of potential spousal groups or anything of that nature. The people that are invisible are invisible. They're marginalized. They're kind of on the outskirts. And so kind of take a step back and and examine where the in-groups are at your church. You know, don't play like they're not there because they're there, right? But what do those people look like? How do they dress? Where do we feel pressure to look a certain way and assimilate into certain cultures? Whether it's something as simple as the way our hair looks or what kind of makeup we have, how much we need to, quote unquote, snap back after we have a child. You know, Mm. the insecurity that happens when we don't fit into that anymore. If we gain weight or have a health condition or what have you, there's some insecurity and anxiety that comes up for many reasons that are very understandable. But what I would assert is that there's also something underlying where we haven't done a great job in the church of actually really meaning when we say that there's some sort of imperishable beauty that comes from a gentle and quiet spirit. I'm not sure that we really are saying that. So what you're saying is this is a cultural thing. Big, this cultural, is, this is, insidious thing. You're not mm-hmm. saying this is a church issue. You're saying this is a, a American issue. cultural issue. Mm-hmm. But what we're talking about is if we're going to be people who are different. We should look different than the world. There should be something when you come into church spaces, non-believers should say, what's up with these people? Everybody's all kind of intertwined and intermingling and they're real into inner beauty, whatever that is, you know, and people's souls. You don't have to look a certain way to be with certain people or deemed kind of worthy or even get labeled as beautiful. What's up with those people? That's interesting. And I'm just, I'm not seeing that. Okay. And I've enabled these things. I've said these things. I have lived my life and had insecurities about my own body just related to this topic, but I don't want to do that anymore. 
Okay. So what are you doing yeah. to change that? Because I'm sitting here going, okay, well, where am I a part of this problem? Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, I, I happen to just personally believe that language is very powerful psychologically, uh, just literally culturally, that's what moves the needle sometimes is changing the way that you speak and other people hearing that. So what I've been doing is watching my language, mm. who I label, oh, she's so pretty. Why did I just say that? Uh-huh. What about that, you know, made it seem like she right. was pretty? One thing that I've noticed is, is this whole cultural standard of beauty um, has left a lot of Black women feeling invisible and marginalized and feeling as though they are not potential spouses in these evangelical spaces um, or feeling like they're not beautiful. Because so, they're different. Because they are different. Than what because you they would don't see as meet the cultural those cultural norm. standards. No, they don't. And, and, and they don't get a lot of affirmation from that from other people. Not that they need to chase that, but there's something about that that tells you a certain narrative when you get some silence from people. So what I've been doing is trying to affirm that in other women of color that I see, in people who don't fit into the 36, 24, 36 model. Who does? Saying, I mean, like, no, come on. It's impossible it's to impossible. attain. That's why we're spending yeah. so much money trying to do it, yeah. right? And so I think part of that is speaking worth in different ways to women, as opposed to saying, you're so pretty, or your hair is great. You look so skinny, as though that's worth giving and life giving. We do. That's what we do. That's what we do. That is what we do. Instead of that, I've tried to say more fruits of the spirit that I see in people, you know, or the way the kindness that happens, gentleness that happens, the way that they love well. That's the part that, A, Jesus is imperishable because if you think your body's staying the same over the course of your lifetime, you yeah. got another thing coming, yeah. uh-huh. right? So that thing is staying forever. But also that's what is beauty to the Lord. And so what I want to try to do is reflect that with my language. I fail at this constantly and it's much harder than I thought, but I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to walk in more confidence about being made on purpose and with purpose. My skin's not a mistake. It's not a defect. My hair is kinky and curly and it's beautiful and great, right? Because I I wasn't made as a mistake, but culture and lies tell me that I was. And the silence around my kind of reflection of, of God's beauty in these spaces helps perpetuate that lie. And so what I'm trying to do is, is shift the culture just around the people around me just by shifting the language. This is good, mm-hmm. Andrea. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm like over here thinking, I've never thought of it in the way that you're saying mm-hmm. it. You know, like I have heard the conversations about black women feeling less than because mm-hmm. they don't meet these cultural norms. So I like, yeah. I tell story all the time, her hair is awesome, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because I've heard that from black sure. women who say, I didn't like my hair because it was different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so like, I tell her that all the time. Your mm-hmm. hair is beautiful. Right. But besides like the racial thing, just about like people in general sure. with this cultural norm, which we all know and agree. But when you brought it down to like the church and I can look at you and say like, Andrea, have you lost five pounds since I lost you? You should look awesome. Right. And I get a little thrill inside and I can sleep at night. because Or I it's that, just right? that I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I, but there's something. Instead yes. of like, Andrea, gosh, you are so gentle with Jeremiah. Like I love yes. that about you. Or you know what? If I did lose weight to say, good job taking care of your body and be a good steward of the body God gave you. Good, good going. That Instead is of good. you look better taking, now than you did Now then. you look better than you used to. This is right? good stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. It's Just a, a change in that language. shift of language. Yeah, because then that's going to, because that mouth is the overflow of the heart. So if there is something that I have the impulse to say, trying to take a step back and reflect and say, why do I even want to say that? Why did I just say that? What makes me feel like I want to hide or feel insecure in these ways and trying to combat that lie, especially around other black women 
You're rocking my world mm-hmm. today. <laughs> well, you are welcome for a rock world, <laughs> Jamie. You're rocking Ivy. my world. Like, what am I going to say to people when yes. I see them today? I'm going to come up with sure. new compliments. Yeah, I, that's what I've been doing. That is what I've been doing. And it's been so eye-opening. And I've seen bias that I had that I didn't know was there. And so it's the kindness of the Lord to actually show that to me. It is. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andrea, thank you for rocking my world on that, honestly. You're so and Thank the Lord, because that's where it came from. It is. I yes. mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. And it is like, I think that, if everyone who's listening is like, mm-hmm. we're following Jesus and sure. we want to look more like him. And every day mm-hmm. we're like, God, make me look more mm-hmm. like you. This is such a great conversation mm-hmm. that I just haven't thought about in all of these ways. Sure. Like, sure. obviously, there's some of these things that mm-hmm. thankfully aren't new to me. Sure. But there are so many things that you just said that I just went, okay, I do that. Right, we all do right. that. And thank you for even confessing. Yeah. Like, I do this. I'm trying to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I think a good next step is to talk to people around you, other women, other women who don't look like you, okay? Because there's this, there's a piece in psychology, a woman named Kimberly Kinshaw came up with something called intersectionality, okay? So that's when multiple identities kind of intersect and create this unique experience of identity. So Jamie, you and I are both women, right? We have that identity. We're both mothers. We both have that identity. But when it comes to racial identity, it's a little bit different. Okay, so my understanding and conceptualization of beauty personally looks like me being a black woman. It comes through that lens and you don't share that identity. So there's where those two identities intersect. I've got some different things that I've got to work through. So even though we're both women, there's something added there in which I have a unique experience on the world. So if people can talk to each other, even though they share an identity, not to assume that everything is going to be the same just because we're both girls, just because we're both women, we're both mothers. It's not the same. So checking that out, seeing the people around you. Are there one or two people in your spaces that don't look like everybody else? Watch them. Listen. See who's talking to them. See who's responding to them. See who's complimenting them. And just kind of learn. Have a learning posture to see what happens, especially if you meet that conventional standard of beauty. And that's great for you. That's not where your worth is either, right? right? But also understand that there are some blind spots you may have to loving people well mm-hmm. in those spaces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's, you're, you're not saying there's anything wrong with you. Do If you do no. meet those standards, you just happen to be the you lucky just one. So that, you just so happen to be. Congratulations on your face. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that's here. It's an American thing as well. Right. Because those standards do not equate all they over the not. world. They do not. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, I want to move on to something else that I've heard you speak about before, and that Mm -hmm. is grieving unmet expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I think the longer you live, the more grieving you will do over unmet expectations. Obviously, we have unmet expectations as kids, you know, like. I, I, I just I, think the yeah. yeah the longer you live the more you're going to do that with with your age with your um, fertility with mm-hmm. your marriages with your careers I've done that with all of them <laughs> yeah with even your own children sure I mean like we can be honest about that and Absolutely. say I mean my best friend Amy has had to grieve the unmet expectation that her daughter has because she has special needs ah uh, yes and so she's never going to get married she's never going to drive all those things right right and I think it's a good thing we can say out loud, I'm actually grieving this. Yes. Okay, so tell me, what does this look like for you? Mm -hmm. How old are you? I am 32. And you're 32 years. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you've had to kind of walk through? This is not how I thought life was going to be. Right. I think, well, first, I think I'll back up to what that phrase that you just said, I'm I'm actually grieving this because the definition of grief, I think, is sometimes misinterpreted. We think of death. Yeah. Or we think of a breakup or something of that nature, a miscarriage, something where it's this finality of, of it's a gone soul forever. left. Yes. Okay. But grief 
can happen in much broader ways than that. And so to use that word in a lot of unmet expectations, it just means that you are you are coming to terms and processing what is versus what you thought was or what once was. If you if we have that kind of definition for grief, it could apply to anything. There are varying levels of how that can experience. Death surely is something the culmination of that, but there can be other smaller ways that that looks. For, I think one of the first times that I had to deal with with this was when I found out that I had a diagnosis of uh, severe stage four endometriosis as a graduate student. And I was dating a guy, ended up marrying the guy, it's fine. But um, at the time I was dating the guy and this was, it was a very serious thing. The doctor said I had to go to specialist and he said, you know, if you'd waited a few more years to see me, I would have had to do a complete hysterectomy um, because this is, it's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah. I didn't have to do that. I had a couple of surgeries, different things of that nature. But at that time when I had to come face to face with this expectation that I would be a woman who married a man and bore children biologically in that order. And now I was staring down this dark hole of none of that could happen. Right. God showed me how much of my worth and identity was in that because I remember telling at the time, my boyfriend, I said, I don't think you should marry me. I feel defective. Mm, there's something wrong with there's me. There's something wrong with, it's not, it's not, I'm not good enough, mm-hmm. right? Because you should be with somebody who can give do you all things. of the kids, do all of the things that you're supposed to do. Now, however many years that is, what, 10, 11 years yeah. later, 12 years later, I can say that my worth is not dependent on how my reproductive organs work. Right. But then I had to grieve that. I had to come to terms with the fact that this may not be a possibility for me. God was gracious and kind. And I told you, I've got two kids I made from scratch, mm-hmm. right? But even though the expectation ended up being met, my worth is still no more in those kids right. than it was before um, when at you that thought, time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one thing that I did have to grieve was just the thought that I would have this very linear, efficient process of childbearing and even marriage in that way. I have a question for you about mm-hmm. this. We at our house do not speak language that says everyone's going to college. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. For this exact reason. Sure. Because maybe not everyone in our house is college and that's okay. Mm-hmm. College mm-hmm. material, college ready, whatever sure. you want to say, higher mm-hmm. education. I'm wondering if there's this, we talked about language earlier. Sure. If there is this kind of expectations that is put on us as children. Sure. That you will grow up and you will go to college and you will meet a man around 22, mm-hmm. you're married by 25, and then you have babies and then you live your life happily ever after. Ever after. We do it. We do it all of the time in a lot of our language. We don't, in our house, we, my kids are five and two. So we, don't we really don't, talk we about do, We talk that. differently about marriage as well. We talk very differently about marriage. And so the people that come into our house, we kind of have this open door policy about mm-hmm. people coming in, especially single people, yeah. dating people. And when someone starts to date or be in a relationship, my husband and I are very careful about our reactions to them and not to say, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Do you think you'll get, what do you think is going to happen? And they get engaged to be completely over the moon. It's wonderful to be excited for people and for them to enter into a covenant. But when you have that sort of reaction, there's a subtext there that says, now you're worthwhile. Ding, 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 you hit the lottery kind of thing. Um, And so we are careful with our language and with our reactions to not put that kind of worth on them. Because what does that say about people who don't get married? Exactly. What does that say about people who who don't go to college? Yeah, or Uh can't have children because their body does not work Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. way that other people's does. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. God, there are so many things that if you think through that lens Mm -hmm. of what is our, how does our language put worth on people? Yes. Yes. It's just, I mean, we could 
We can you come can up with things all day all long. All of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a worthwhile reflection because people will feel so much more seen and loved and held um, when that happens. Yeah. I think of another area of kind of disillusionment was once I got married, A, that I knew this person inside and out and all that they had to offer me. False. No. Um, and that they wouldn't hurt me or mm-hmm. wound me in the ways that I feared the most. Right. And so I came in with these expectations. They some of them were conscious, I could have said out loud, but many of them were unconscious because I just assumed. Mm-hmm. I assumed once you get married, these things will happen. And if you marry a quote unquote godly man, there are certain things you'll never have to experience. Yeah. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So getting to experience, and again, now I say as a kindness of the Lord, but experiencing spousal failure or wounds, you know, on either side of us. But Having these moments, and I know you may have had them, Jamie, um, but I'm sure many other women too, have you have this, again, out of the matrix moment of who did I marry? What just happened? What did I do to my life, right? This is not what I thought this marriage was going to be. Maybe it's even, I, I want to get out of here, okay? This is not okay. I'm going to get hurt, right? And so having these expectations, part of that, I think, Yes, bears the need for community and counseling and all of these other things, biblical truth. But another part of it that I think is so necessary is grieving the unmet expectations because we can get stuck there emotionally. And you can start saying phrases to yourself or to your spouse or to your community of, it wasn't supposed to be like Mm -hmm. this, right? No, it's supposed to be, if my spouse really loved me, this is how he would treat me, right? Um, And all of that's just projection. It's just what you thought was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, we cannot control those things. Yeah. And so I think part of that potential for getting stuck can come from not fully just grieving what happened, lamenting yeah. what happened, as it says in, in scripture, yeah. to just lay it all and surrender it to people, to the Lord, um, because it's tough. Yeah. It's really it's tough so when tough. those things happen. Yeah. I remember my friend Amanda said she thought once she got married, she would never get hurt again. Mm-hmm. She said she's been hurt the most, not because her husband's awful, but because there's this new, very deep covenant relationship it, the Absolutely. hurt is bigger. It is bigger. And so she said that was one of her eye-opening when she first got married that her and her mm-hmm. husband had to walk through was like, oh, this hurts even more. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. harder than I thought. Harder than I thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa Turker, her new book that came out this year, it's not supposed to be this way. I mean, it is about walking through that. Like, sure. this is not how I thought this was going to be. And she was hurt in her marriage through infidelity. And mm-hmm. so, but just walking through that. Mm-hmm. And the coolest mm-hmm. thing I think about her book, and she was on the show this year, is she said she wrote it from a place in the middle when she didn't know how it was going to turn out. Oh, wow. And That's I just beautiful. thought that is so useful for women because mm-hmm. she's not now, praise God, her mm-hmm. marriage is... There's been repentance and restoration, sure. all the things. That's beautiful. But there was this this piece in the middle of not knowing where it's going to go, and hers mm-hmm. just going, "God, how this is not what we were supposed. To, this sure. is not what we signed up for. Mm-hmm. This is not mm-hmm. it." And mm-hmm. I think that goes another way, which is helping women understand that a man doesn't complete you. Yes, and that mm-hmm. your life doesn't all all of a sudden become better once you get married. No, no. And I think even for me, when I would hear those things at a younger age, I thought, "Well, sure, but it's not going to get worse." Right, right. <laughs> That's. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It'll at least be this yeah, good, uh-huh. right? Because you you have this kind of whirlwind romance or you show each other your best selves while mm-hmm. you're dating. Oh, yeah, when course. you're engaged, everybody's so thrilled uh-huh. for you, right? Yeah. And y- people are also telling you, oh, your life won't get better. Marriage doesn't complete you. Uh, and you're like, that's cool. But also, I'm kind of living my best life right yeah. now. So yeah. what's really the problem if uh-huh. my life doesn't get better? We can go ahead and kind of level out here right. and I'm cool. Right. Um, 
I didn't know, no, this is going to be the one of the hardest things you will do is yeah. take two broken people and try to merge them in a way that looks like God's relationship to us. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting, Aaron and I have been married almost 18 years and everyone says like, oh, the first couple of years can be so difficult. Sure. We did not hit a difficult patch until probably 10 years into our marriage. We were which, about seven, yeah, six or seven. Yeah, it's that like, you know, yeah, and on. ours was situational. Our life got crazy mm-hmm. for a couple of years and- it affected everything. And that is when you have to remind yourself that, I mean, hard doesn't equal bad. Yes. You know, yes. and with the covenant marriage that you've counted mm-hmm. to. I also think as parenting, I think this is hard to talk about as well because sure. it makes us think we're saying there's something wrong with our kids. Yes. yes. But I have heard Aaron has told me so many times what our kids do, we're not identified by that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. That is good for women to understand because I want to walk alongside my kids Mm -hmm. because I love them and because I want them to look more like Jesus. And I don't want to do things because I worry about my identity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is hard. It's so difficult. It was so, I've talked to one of my friends, Chelsea, about this um, recently where we were saying we have this kind of barometer on our hearts. It's this litmus test of our worth as mothers. I don't, I'm not sure if fathers do this to this extent, but I think there's something about motherhood and, and womanhood that's so coagulated. And so we were saying, you know, when your kids behave well, well, you feel I'm like awesome. a boss, I'm right? I am this. I am getting it. And Mom then when the they year. don't, Oh boy. There's something wrong right? with me. There's something crushed. It's in our language to go back to that again. What do we say all the time? I'm a good mom. Oh yeah. I'm the worst mom uh-huh. ever, right? I think both of those in any given day. Right. At any time. Yes. Which should be indication that something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> right. Right? But that that ascription that we describe to that identity says something about our worth. It says I'm a good mom or a bad mom. So now however they behave is some sort of expectation of myself. I can think of one example when um, my oldest son was probably one, one and a half, and he was in daycare and he bit someone. You're talking about unmet, subconscious unmet expectations. I'm like, my What's kids, wrong with- something I have a soapbox about, something I get real up in arms about is children not being kind to other children. Uh-huh. So either biting, bullying, whatever. I'm like, that. not my child. Uh-huh. Okay? And now look. And so I'm coming up to pick him up and they're like, oh, you know, he bit somebody. I'm like, oh my God. Right. I'm thinking, I what did I do? What's my my emotions just hit a roller coaster, right? I'm self-flagellating. I'm, I'm criticizing myself. What did I do? How did I do this? And so the Lord eventually in praying through this and then talking to my husband as well, realized, wait, that's a one and a half year old kids bite kids. They, they don't have the that's words. So they just go after them. So first of all, yeah, yeah. calm down. Yeah. And second of all, you can parent him, mm-hmm. okay? You can parent him well. And thirdly, the Lord gave you this child to parent and steward well. This isn't just your kid primarily, okay? This is not a narcissistic reflection of yourself. Um, Even though you may have had kids for that reason, it's not, okay? So you can parent him and show him true things, but you can pray over that child for fruits of the Spirit to cultivate for him. It may not happen. You can't control, you know, what's going to happen or how God will will that. He could have bitten for the rest of his life you know, yeah. for all I and know. And you could be the same mom saying this is not the how we same, treat people. I am still a beloved daughter of the risen king. That can't change because he died and rose again, right? So there's the gospel is there. So my goodness or awfulness, quote unquote, as a mother, that's no longer my litmus test for how much I'm worth, right? Um, but it still happens. My emotions still rise and fall. I want to tell people all the awesome things that I do as a mom and I want to hide and shame myself for the things that I feel like I failed at. Yeah. 
And I mean, you and I are both Christians, so we mm-hmm. spend a lot of time in the church. And so I think sure. we can say like, man, this is a difficult thing because yes. we're going to raise up people who have good kids and say, well, they must be really awesome parents. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you can have some really awesome parents and their kid just acts a fool. Acts, yes. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so the worth is, that's that's a, someone's listening right now and they're just going, thank you, Jesus, that my worth is not right. d- dependent. Right, right on my kids' actions. Because listen, they might be saying the same things that we said when it comes to marriage disillusionment, where you're saying it was not supposed to be like this now. Why are my kids like this? I want out. Like parenthood is not what I thought this was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And those same, part of that, I think is just an indication of, A, there's things that you need to lament and surrender to the Lord. Just sit and be with that, you know? Also, women need to start being real with themselves, Jamie, and each other. They need to tell the truth. Women out here perpetrating, they fronting. I see y'all, okay? Because you talk to me in private, but I see y'all out here fronting and in public, okay? So people are trying to make themselves appear as though they are the good mom um, that they want people to believe that they are. They, They want to believe they are, okay? But then things happen, failures occur, and there's this tension that we can't reconcile. We have a hard time reconciling. And then we'll keep stuff secret. We'll keep stuff deceived and shamed because we can't now... Everybody's got this expectation. What are they going to think? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's real talk. I've done that before, but there's no, that's not of God. Mm-mm. You need you your need people that. that you can talk you that them. to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, and we're not saying you need to write a blog and tell all your people. Don't tell mess. everybody. Have no, boundaries. But you need to tell your people. <laughs> yes. You need to tell your people. You know, it makes, I was thinking just now when you said about parenting and marriage, that disillusion that we have. Here's what I think too, and you can correct me, but I just thought about this. Coming into a marriage and we have these expectations that mm-hmm. are unmet. It's easy to put, that's his fault. It is. He is not who I wanted. He is not who mm-hmm. I thought he was. He, he, he. Mm-hmm. I feel like in parenting, we go, there's something wrong with me. me. Yeah. And so yeah. I don't even know what that means, but it's both of their unmet expectations, but we kind of deal with it differently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. sometimes in marriage, it doesn't affect our worth because we think it ain't our problem. Yeah. It's his problem. Absolutely. But as a mama... It is my. It is me. Sure. It has to be me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am bad. There's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. God must not love me as much. Right. Oh. When you say that right now in a room full of just adult women, that sounds ludicrous. That right. sounds crazy. But in the midst of children, in vivo, in those real experiences, that is what happens. We really do escalate that and, and make it akin to our worth. I've done couples therapy. And usually when I had a supervisor say this once, he said, usually when people sit down in couples therapy, you have two people sit down and you say, okay, what's the problem? And both people point at each other, right? They say, fix them. And you fix the problem. Yeah. Oftentimes though, in family systems therapy, you still have that kind of identified patient there, right? That's like, really this person, uh-huh. if you get their behaviors under control, it's cool. Um, but yes, I think there is something that happens with parenthood, this responsibility. Yeah. Okay. And there's a difference between responsibility and accountability and then just limits of control. Mm. You got a locus of control there where there's only so much you can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is a, it's a great conversation and we could talk for hours, but I think that the people that are listening, what we would want you to understand is like, we, we want to be good parents. I mean, we want to follow does. what God wants sure. us to do. We want to steer our kids in the way of the gospel. Mm-hmm. We want to teach them the fruits of the spirit. We want to mm-hmm. do all of those things, but we also want to like, let God do his job yeah. on our kids. Yeah. And then where we can sit back and say, man, I am doing the best that I can mm-hmm. because of God's spirit within me, right. letting, allowing me to do this. Sure. And and the result is it's kind of like we we hold our kids open-handed sure. and, and we're not Absolutely. carrying that weight. Absolutely. You know, I think open-handed. about this with salvation. Mm-hmm. 
we'll do this and then we got to go. Good Lord, mm-hmm. we could talk for hours. <laughs> but I remember like a handful of years ago, I when I thought about my kids and their salvation, I grew up Southern Baptist, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. it was like, Nothing wrong with Southern Baptist at all. But when I grew up, it was like, have you prayed the prayer? Sure. And if you haven't, let's pray real quick so that you know that you're going to heaven. Mm -hmm. Well, as I'm a parent now, my kids get of age and I think it's my job to save them. Right. I must. Absolutely. I must tell them the truth. I must make sure they pray. And then I can kind of sit back and think Mm -hmm. my job is done. Mm -hmm. And I have just had to learn that like God is the one that saves our kids. Right. I cannot save my kids and I cannot send them. I can't damn them either. No. Which that was good for me as well. Mm -hmm. Because in my crazy mammoth stuff, if I'm not acting the way I should be, I can't mess up my kids. So I just think there's that like sigh of relief Mm -hmm. where we Mm -hmm. go, man, God, you've entrusted me with these kids because you think we're best for each other. Right, right. I'm going to live by the spirit. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to hold them open-handed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there is also, you know, there's, there's, many groups of women and men who parent and who have made mistakes and who have done things where they say, okay, that is 100% on me. But shame and guilt is still not of God. Nope. You know, so when you've got these beloved creatures that are thinking that the way out of that is continued self-degradation and continued kind of beating themselves up over and over again. I cannot believe I did that. And that's your way is like penance. Mm -hmm. You're diminishing the cross in that sense. Exactly. Right. You're saying that that wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. Okay to actually absolve you of what you've done. So I think part of that is understanding sanctification and salvation for yourself and living open-handed with your own journey. Oftentimes people do the best they can for who they are at the time. Yeah. Okay. God died for our mess ups, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good for kids to see and have modeled for them. It's how they can treat other people well as yeah. also, you know, in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we're going to keep it real, I'm going to apologize to two out of my four kids when they get off the bus today. So there we go. There you go. I'm going to have to apologize to two out of two of them, probably. <laughs> Give me a few hours. <laughs> yeah, to yep. somebody. Um, yes. Andrea, man, I'm telling you, mm-hmm. when I say that you are just like a gift to me and even to our body at our church, like I'm so oh, serious. That is so kind of you to say. Just the, like I'm sitting over here having light bulbs go <laughs> off in my head. And I feel like that every time I have a conversation oh. with you, I mean- there there was a season or two I would see you at church and I'd just be like, girl, I don't even girl, know what's happening. Time. I don't even know what's going <laughs> on would. with the world. Like, it, it was just like, so thank you. You are so welcome. And thank you for, your, to do it. for your investment. Oh, that's fine. Yes, in, thank you. Thank people. you for doing everything you do and girl. having conversations like this. We can talk about I'm real trying. stuff. I'm learning. Like, I, yes. I have learned so much in the past five years. As am I. You know, just sit and listen to people who are really smart, like Dr. Holman. Okay, I always end the show with asking people three things they're loving and what they're reading. What do you yes. have for me? Okay, what am I reading? I am reading three books at the same time because reading is a hobby. I can't handle that, <laughs> what you just said, but carry on. <laughs> I read, it's different points of the day, time, okay. what mood I'm in. No, I've heard people do uh, that. Yeah. Yes. So in the time that I have prayer time and whatnot, I'm reading a book called Humility by Andrew Murray. Very, very short book, but very good book. Uh-huh. And showing me that even though I'm not arrogant, I'm very prideful. Mm. Okay. Those are two different things. Uh, Jamar Tisby's book, Color of Compromise, yeah. mm-hmm. um, is... Just I have great. that here somewhere. Mm-hmm. I need to I get it, it but out. It is Jamar. I read that book slowly, but that book is a lot happening. Okay, <laughs> so okay. it's fabulous. But I'm breaking that one up okay. if I did. And then a book called Thick and Other Essays. I, mean, I think her name is Terry Cotton. I might have made that wrong. Messed up. But it's about uh, Black women, body image, and cultural norms and influences. A series of short essays. Okay. And so those are great books that I'm I love reading it. right now. What are you loving these what days? What am I loving? I am loving the fact that when I leave here, I'm going to go pack for a family vacation. That's a thing I'm Where loving. Are you going? It's plane tickets. We're going to Utah. 
in the mountains. I've never been. Most are people, y'all getting on an airplane? We are with y'all. the very small children. So you know what? If y'all end up on a flight to Utah tomorrow, just show us grace. We okay. All right, we're going to make it. Hey, uh, do it now. Our family of six has never been on an airplane together because it is not cheap. Six plane tickets. Yes. That's a lot. So do it girl, yes, now so while you just got two. So the youngest turns two in June. So we over here, we... Free ticket. Okay, <laughs> we plan for three tickets Lap today. Baby, yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Utah. Um, so that, and then I am loving right now. I just got a protective hairstyle. I got some twists for the summer. Which they look great. So thank you. So I'm loving that because I don't have to do my hair. I love it. For the summer and it's great. I love it. So, and it looks good too. Thank you. Is that two things? That's two am things. I learned? You got one, one more? more thing. I am loving, I'm going to think of um, the song that I was listening to on the way here. So are you familiar with Tasha Cobbs? No. Break every chain. Yes. Okay, that's the okay. Her song Gracefully Broken. I okay. am loving right now. It's, I play it probably every day. Gracefully broken. Yes, I'm that's what I'm loving today. that song right now. So okay. it's very good. Sing Break Every Chain so I make sure I'm on the same you, Am I gonna sing it for you? Yeah. Because they might pause the podcast right now. <laughs> it's Amabon. Yeah, there you okay, go. I got it, I got it. Okay, got it, got it, got it yes. Got I love it, it love it, love yeah. it, love it. Um so. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's been great having you on the happy hour. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. Friends, did you love it? Did she rock your world with the conversation that I told you she was going to rock your world with about beauty and the expectations that we put on people? I appreciate Andrea's honesty and kindness to talk about the elements surrounding interracial relationships and parenting, the humility that she talked about that is required in fostering and what it looks like to grieve unmet expectations. These are conversations that I love having because they are so relevant to all of our lives. There's something in there for all of us. My world has been rocked many times after talking with Andrea. And in this conversation, I became so aware of how I want to be mindful of what value I place on beauty and how important the language I use to speak worth into the lives of women truly is. I hope that you will also begin to think about this. How incredible it would be if the standard of beauty was found not in size and color or in shape of a woman's physical body, but in the manner in which she lives her life, which is the overflow of her heart. I could cry thinking about that. That is beautiful. Today's show was edited by Chris with Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Aki Slockers. The whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Next week, my guest is Lauren Eberspatcher. Lauren is a blogger over at From Blacktop to Dirt Road. You're going to understand the name when we have the conversation. She writes about all things about faith, farming, old-fashioned homemaking. Those are things that Lauren writes about. She grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City, but then she fell in love with a farm boy from Nebraska. And that city girl turned to her farmer's wife. That's why her name at her blog is From Blacktop to Dirt Road. We talk about living intentionally for Jesus and Lauren shares about her desire to give encouragement to the everyday mama and wife. I wanna tell you right now, and I'm gonna remind you again next week that Lauren and I talk about married people stuff. And when I say married people stuff, I mean, you know, the S word. We talk about that part of our conversation. It's not a bad conversation. It is a conversation what two women might have about married people things, but... You might want to save the episode for when you can listen with your earbuds in or you're alone in the car or you're out on a walk and there's not literal ears listening unless you want me to be the one to have the sex talk with them. And I don't think that you do. You're going to love our conversation next week. You love the conversation with Andrea today. You guys, thanks for listening. Enjoy your week. Share the show with a girlfriend. Have a happy hour with a friend. And I will see you guys back here next week with Lauren. Lauren.